As for you, continue in the things you have learned, and about which you have become convinced. You know from whom you learned them, and that from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, well-equipped for every good work. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, special guest, Professor John Brug of the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, of the Wisconsin Synod. Gentlemen, good to have you here today. Nice to be here. Always great to be here, Willie, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So I'm just going to l- turn over my usual banting to over to John. Right. Professor Brug, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I'm retired now. I taught at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, mostly Old Testament and doctrine, dogmatics, for some 32 years. I taught at Dr. Martin Luther College for a few years. I was a parish pastor and involved in starting three new congregations out in Pennsylvania. So that's a special love for me, and those people will always be really special in my heart. And so now about the last four years, I've devoted full time to working on this translation project after I did not teach any more regular classes at the seminary, though I still teach a lot of summer classes. My degree from the University of Minnesota is in archaeology and Middle Eastern languages, so I have a special interest in bringing geography, archaeology, and all that sort of stuff into helping us with translation work. Very good. So the reason we've brought you on today is to talk about biblical translation, in particular, the new translation from Northwestern, the Evangelical Heritage Version. And this is a joint effort between the Wells and the ELS. Is that correct? Well, our group is parasynodical or whatever you'd like to call it, of the Wells, but there have been ELS people involved. But it's not an official project of either synod. It's a, it's our project, and so we provide all the content. We've hired Northwestern to be the printer and publisher of the print editions. So it's not an official translation. It doesn't belong to any church, and it doesn't belong to any publishing house. It belongs to our, I guess I'll call it Bible Translation Society. All right. And who's the intended audience? Everybody, we hope. <laughs> Good. Yeah, that's, what, that's what we want to yeah. hear, right? Yeah. So we try to be a very general, multi-purpose translation. That's where, where our balance comes in. So if people want to make children's editions, that's fine, or simplified editions. But we want to be, if the Bible text is simple, we should be simple. If it's deep and complex, we should be deep and complex. Those of us who work on it are Lutherans, confessional Lutherans, but we get a lot of interest and inquiries from Baptists, Presbyterians, and others. So we certainly hope that the members of our church and the members of your church will be fairly small in the percentage of participants or people that find it useful. A lot of people from online, overseas, you know, inquire about it. So we hope we can reach as many people as possible, and we're attempting to get the word out in order to do that. And the first edition has already been published, correct? Yes, the print edition is out, and they sold out very quickly, so they're printing another one now, so there might be a lag of a week or so, or more than that, there might be some lag if people would order right now, because sold a lot of them quickly, much more quickly than Northwestern anticipated. So the versions like Logos, other online versions, Bible Gateway and that, some of them are running a little bit behind their schedule, but all of those should be coming in shortly, and we've been requested for licenses from some other people. So the online versions, Kindle, Nook, all of those things should be not too far behind. So when you set out to make a new translation of the Bible, where do you begin? What's your overarching goal and your overarching motivation for the new translation? I think that's kind of expressed by our word heritage. Heritage is a word that looks in two directions. 
We want to be conscious that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, as the saying goes, and we don't necessarily have to take a Hebrew Bible and a piece of paper and a pencil and start from (laughs) scratch. We're respectful of Luther's translation, other translations all along. So we're not based on any one translation or anything, but we were hoping to find a translation that's enjoyable and readable to people in the congregation, especially for the lectionaries. Maybe you've noticed our translation is online in the lectionaries used in the Missouri Synod also. They can be used free of charge. So clarity of reading, preserving heritage from the past, terms like saints, walk with God. We don't want to just dump terms, communion we're going to keep. We don't want to dump terms that are part of our worship heritage. And yet, on other places, we want to find new terms that will communicate a little better if the old term isn't quite so clear. So it's that balance between keeping the best heritage from the past and having a good heritage to pass on to our children and our grandchildren. I'm more than 70 years old. I don't need a new translation. (laughs) But the last thing I need, I'm aware I want my children, my grandchildren you know, it will have to keep growing and changing, but we're trying to look in two directions. How can we bring the best of past tradition, help the new generation learn those traditions if they're not familiar with them, but also be looking forward to the future? That's our purpose, I guess. Now, would the intent be to eventually have a set text, or will you do something akin to the ESV and come back every few years and revise? We want to have a very stable text. I think after congregations have been able to use this about three to five years, we'll listen to the input. I think it's especially our Lutheran school teachers that want a stable text. At least, you know, they don't want kids having one thing in second grade and significant difference in familiar passages, you know, when they're in eighth grade. So we we want to be conscious of improvement But we want to be conscious of trying to have a stable text, too. We're not going to be changing a real lot just for the sake of change, but we don't want to stick in the mud either when language and usage changes. But stability, especially for the schools, is one of our goals. Which would be why you have things using the the heritage terms that you were explaining, like communion and, and those things, keeping that stability from the past as well is, is important going into the future. Yes. I mean, is, that, is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, that's right. Well, very good. Well, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in, John, is that what what's kind of the, the, the background of this project? I know the, the Wartburg Project, who produced the EHV, has been around for a little bit, but kind of... Where did it get started? Like, how did it get started? You know, what was what was the reason why you undertook such a, a gigantic project as translating the whole Bible? Kind of, what's what's the timeline of this whole translation? Well, I started my parish ministry in the King James, and I taught from the NIV 84 for close to 40 years. And always, I wanted a translation maybe that at times was a little closer and a little more preserving of the Hebrew. And I think we we are concerned about the whole issue of text. Many translations, recent translations, if the reading isn't in almost every manuscript, including their favorites, they tend to not put those verses in or bracket them. And our philosophy is if there is early and widespread evidence for a reading, it should be included. So I think a textual concern was partly there and readability for congregations. Honestly, I don't want to get into talking about other translations too much, but if NIV 84 would have continued and wouldn't have been taken away, humanly speaking, I doubt if we would have said, well, let's really undertake a project of this size. But we felt there was a need for a translation that had balance, readability, a fuller text, and also had balance of trying to reflect the Hebrew and Greek better. So we don't have one philosophy that we're always very literal or very loose throughout the Bible. We try to say in each individual case, is it better that we stay a little more literal and bring out the scriptural idiom, or will that be really confusing. I mean, there's a lot of places where a little translation doesn't work very well. I've just been teaching the Song of Songs, 
and I don't know what we can say on the air, but the young lady in the Song of Songs says <laughs> the, the FCC the man, has no jurisdiction here. So yeah, you know, says to the man who loves her, "My bowels move for you." It's a wonderful, perfect literal translation, but I don't think it's going to work, is it? So we have to say <laughs> yeah. something like, "My heart yearns for you," or "I love you very deeply," or something like that. So we try to consider how literal we should be. We always like to be as close as we can to the Hebrew and Greek, but we also say it's got to make sense, and especially it can't be offensive or weird in English and confusing. Sure, yeah. But but when did the project uh, get started? Well, some people were kind of working on it informally. Some people encouraged our synod or our publishing house to do it, and they decided that it wasn't really economically possible. It's a tough environment for publishing houses, you know, with all the electronic things and they're not charities, and sometimes they've got to be self-supporting. We also thought the idea we'd like a translation. We're not a pro- we're not a for-profit corporation. A translation that we would try as best we could to make readily available to the church and to people. Anybody, for example, can use a thousand verses if they're doing a Bible study or something of our translation with no permission. And I don't really have time. I'm not out there counting whether it's a thousand one or whatever. <laughs> but people, you know, if somebody wanted to do a catechism or something and they wanted to use our text, they should ask us technically, I guess, if they're using more than a thousand verses, but if it's less than that. So we worked on it about five years. And the part of the reason we were able to do it is we had such an abundance of wonderful volunteers who really worked as volunteers without expectation of getting pay. And if we sell them and we get some royalties, well, we'll be able to give them some reward for their labor. But it was kind of a labor of love for the church to have something that would be not controlled by, say, a conglomerate or a a corporation or something that was tied into a a for-profit need. And right. we, we want to be a non-profit. We aren't giving the printed Bibles away for free. Don't get me wrong there. We don't have a need to meet a bottom line or to make a profit. We can put the focus on making the Bible available as our chief focus. If we make money, we do. If we don't, we fine. We've had a great sure. experience working with the Word of God. So we've been working at it for five years. And, of course, couldn't do that at all without the computer era. It produces some problems of its own, but it just would have, we did almost everything by email and electronically. We seldom met. So all of those factors kind of played in. Somebody said, well, what was the greatest thing of the whole project? Well, I learned an awful lot. You know, Luther once said, I thought I was a learned man until I started trying to translate the Bible and it cured me pretty quick (laughs) of any such notion. Well, I feel the same way. I really learned a lot, but to me, the great value of it, if nobody ever used it, and you had a group of Christians working together intently on God's word for five years, that in itself is reward enough, and that's its own its own reward and its own payment. I think our people really were blessed who worked on it. And we had all sorts of people, you know, the, many of the readers were lay readers, retired teachers, and so on. Reactions from congregations, of course, included men and women, people of different age. So the the great reward, I think Paul said that once, my reward is preaching the gospel. And here we could say our reward is working together with like-minded Christians with the word of God for five years. It doesn't get too much better than that. Listeners might remember we had Dr. Mark Brown on a couple months ago to talk about the Synodical Conference. And at that time in his second episode, he actually talked a little bit about this project. I understand that Dr. Brown was one of your translators, I think he said, for the Book of Judges or something like that, if I remember right? He's actually one of the Concordia commentators, Okay, commentary translators. So his he was already working on this book for the Concordia commentary, and we thought, well, quite obviously, he can, he can do great service for us. And I, I can mention, there's no doubt about it, the Concordia commentary, especially in the hard books of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel and so on, the scholarship they've gathered together there was a a great blessing and a great benefit to us. I don't think we could have done what we did in the time we did if if the kind of resources that are available in the Concordia Commentary, which we recommend to our pastor readers, it was a great asset to us. 
In the last few minutes of this segment, let's start to look at the translation proper, some of the specifics of it. Do you have a particular underlying body of manuscripts that you went to, or did you consult kind of a broad, well, as broad as you can get, you know, <laughs> looking at this kind of thing? What, what are the underlying texts used? You're talking about the Hebrew and Greek text now, right? Not yes, sorry, yes. Right, yes. Yeah. So we started with the BHS Hebrew text, and very often there you have, you know, variant readings in there, and that you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. But often in the Old Testament, it's a one-for-one tie. The Hebrew text says one thing, and the Septuagint, which was the Bible of the Christian church for centuries in the East, has another reading. And so we put a priority on the Hebrew text, but we don't dismiss the Septuagint either. I'd give you an example of the kind of places we would use at the Greek Old Testament. There are some words included in the Greek text that are not in the Hebrew text. And then you look at those words, and you see that at the beginning of the missing words is the word Jerusalem. And again, at the end of the missing words, there's again the word Jerusalem. And it makes makes much better sense if you have those words in there. I think that's pretty good evidence, even though it's a one-for-one tie, that the copyist I slipped down from the first Jerusalem to the second, and that explains why the Greek has a few more words. Interestingly enough, there was a pastor in South Africa that we don't even know who was working on this and translating a lot of these longer Greek things back into Hebrew. And kind of out of the blue, he offered us his work. So that's just another example of Hmm. where we could get work from the the benefit from the labors of others. And so his work was a very valuable assistance to us in in the Old Testament readings. As far as the New Testament, our principle is if there's good support for it in ancient and especially geographically widespread manuscripts, we put it in. So we don't just follow the UBS text. We don't just follow the King James text, you know, the type, type text that the King James was based on. We try to evaluate each variation, each incident on the basis of the manuscript evidence. And of course, people can have different opinions. I guess we've kind of felt that our job, using the word heritage, our job is not that we think we can decide what's the perfect text. We might have opinions about it. But our job is to record what is the evidence that the church has handed down to us. And if the church has handed down evidence of a reading, we will say, There's widespread evidence for this in Greek manuscripts. There's evidence for omitting it, and we will report to you what the situation is. We won't set ourselves up as judges of the text. Right. Well, and see, that brings up a a question that I've always had when you're on a translation committee or translating yourself, especially for publication. Is it a difficult thing to decide when to include or omit, say, a certain reading or, or a variation, or just to out and out omit a verse like a First John five seven or something like that. Do you do you struggle when trying to decide what to put in, and and how do you eventually come to a, a final decision on that? Well, I'll go to First John five, the three witnesses, the spirits. There's virtually no Greek early evidence for that. It seems to have originated in the Latin and then passed itself down. There's a whole long, complicated history there. So we do not put that in our text. But because that is so familiar to people who are used to the King James tradition, I'll call it, they're going to think, you guys are taking stuff out of the Bible. Don't you believe in the Holy Spirit or something? I mean, that's an extreme, but you'll hear something like that. Sure. So on a case like that, when it's something that's widespread, but there was not sufficient evidence for us to include it, we will usually put a footnote and say, this reading you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three witnesses, is well known through the, whether we say the King James tradition, the majority text tradition or whatever, is well known, but there's not significant evidence for it in the Greek manuscripts. But we'll tell people, this is why we didn't put it in. So we aren't disturbing people. People, you know, don't want to have the feeling that people are adding and subtracting stuff from their Bible. We try to prevent that misunderstanding. On the other hand, if we strongly put it in and other people don't say much about it, we we don't put the end of Mark in brackets, though you can question it a lot because it has good manuscript evidence. 
So we'll simply say this ending is supported by a lot of Greek evidence, quite early and widespread, but it is not in all of the manuscripts. And we don't then make a, sub a subjective judgment that we rate whether it's A, B, or C quality. We simply say, as we find it, this is the evidence that the church has handed down to us. Sure, and a footnote seems fair. Brackets, to me, have always kind of inadvertently cast doubt just by their being there in the text, you know? It's like, okay, there's a question here, and then we're just going to leave it leave it there. So I appreciate the fair and level-headed approach that the, that the EHV is or has taken towards this. But it's time for our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and Professor John Brug joining us to talk about the evangelical heritage version of the Bible. So we ended talking a little bit about text manuscripts, some of the differences there, how the translators went about picking and choosing you know, what they were going to use and why. So now let's take a little bit of a closer look at the translation proper. What is the translation approach that you undertook? Is it more of a formal equivalency, dynamic equivalency, some combination of the two? You have to look at each verse individually. Like, Christ led captivity captive. Well, that's not exactly an English idiom, but it's a very striking expression. So even though you could say, well, he released the captives or something like that, we would like to keep the biblical idiom. There's other places, too. We refer to flesh more than a lot of translations. So we don't have any one particular theory. If we feel we've had to go pretty far from the Hebrew or the Greek in order to make it good, clear English, we'll, maybe not in every case, but we'll pretty consistently put a footnote, literally, so that people know we had to go a little farther away than we might like. So we would say every every passage you have to take it rather than being too locked into one philosophy. Say, what will communicate to people here? And do the best you can with that. I know, like, I've been reading my copy of the EHV since I picked, I managed to snag one during the first printing, so I guess I was fortunate that way. And I think of one occasion, like early on in Genesis, as I'm reading through it, and Rachel, for example, uh, with uh, her father's household gods, I believe literally says in the Hebrew, the, the way of women is upon me. Yeah. But I noticed you guys translate it as uh, quite bluntly as having I'm on my period, which, of course, is extremely clear English. But I, I but I, I, I guess, would you call that? I mean, was that a choice that you made just because of the clarity? Yeah, I think it would be a little unclear. Others, the whole issue of any words about bodily functions, mm -hmm. sexual things. Our belief is if the Hebrew text is euphemistic or indirect, like Adam knew his wife, we should have something equivalent to that we have was intimate with. If In those fairly rare places like Ezekiel 16 and that, where it's blunt, we believe we can't censor the Holy Spirit. So we have to be a little more blunt. Sure. Well, and, and, and like you say, though, that, that, is a, that is helpful for the modern ear because it just says what needs to be sa said without really dancing around 
trying to, like you say, censor the Holy Spirit. But now, like with other passages, like, I mean, did did you actually use captive, leading captivity captive? I, I can't recall whether you put it in the footnote or not, but that would be an example, yeah. Okay. So, so like you say, so it's kind of not really one particular translation philosophy over the other. No, we favor being as close as we reasonably can to the Hebrew and Greek and trying to preserve some biblical idioms like in the eye of God and stuff like that. But we have to kind of look at each case. And in many of these cases, of course, if we have four different reviewers, there'll be five opinions about what we should do or what their, <laughs> favorite, what their favorite rendering is. And then you just have to, I think you kind of, if you think you're getting a little too literal, you kind of apologize for that a little bit and tell why in the footnote, I'm using that word not in a bad sense, but you know, appealing to your readers if we've had to get quite loose, we will say often this is a more literal rendering. Sure, sure. Do you sometimes also like nod your head to more traditional renderings? Like we chose to go this way, but other translations say this. I mean, is that is that something that you do as well? Yeah, well, I think you can argue that. Like we're going to keep the word communion, which hasn't been mm-hmm. in recent translations, but it was well established in the King James tradition you know, across the whole English-speaking church. So whether we're going our own way there or sticking with something that was tried and true for four centuries, that's uh, debatable. Well, is siding with the King James ever a bad idea? I mean, come on, you know, it is, it is, it is, you know, kind of a big deal. It's a, you know, it's got a legacy, you know, and I'm appreciative of when, you know, you, you stand on, on their shoulders. Yeah. And we'll be a little different. Our Psalm 23 is a little different in a couple of places where the Hebrew really calls for it, but it's perfectly fine if you want to have the King James Psalm 23 read at your funeral, and every year you really want to hear the King James Luke 2 Christmas story, that's fine. That's great to keep the best <laughs> of the old. You'd mentioned that you wrote it with an eye towards the lectionary too, so are you also translating kind of with with the ear, you know, what is going to sound better as it's being read aloud, is that something that was part of the process? Yes, it was, but I don't think we'll really be able to claim we do that until after pastors have used it for about two or three years, and the pastor send us an email and say, you know, this is apt to be misunderstood when I'm reading it aloud. We try to catch it, but you can't anticipate, you know, every way that things might be understood differently. It could be different regions, you know, of the country and so on. So we're very conscious of that, but we realize we need input from the pastors that are using the lectionary to give us their opinion about how it, how well it works here and how well it works there. And I'm sure we'll often get opposite opinions, you know, on some cases. One pastor will say this, another pastor will say that, and we have to try to find the happy balance. Right. It's something that doesn't enter into a lot of, well, not a lot, but some translators thinking because outside of liturgical churches, really, the regular public reading of Scripture has fallen away. And so you're getting, with certain new translations, just more of a, is this something I can read quietly to myself or silently to myself? And the public function of it is is sometimes forgotten. Which is thankfully, you know, the Lutheran Church and another church is still using the liturgy. We have kept that, you know, the most ancient form of of scripture reading. It also plays into our view of commas. It's not you don't put commas right. in to fill a rule book, but when people are reading it aloud, including Bible class, when we have to make a decision on a comma, we say, "Is this comma going to help the reader who is reading out loud?" Get get what we believe is the flow of the sentence. So we're more concerned about helping the reader than matching point three of a punctuation. <laughs> yeah, we, right, we can't. Right. We obviously can't ignore those because people think, well, you guys don't know anything about punctuation. But for us, being reader centered in our punctuation is the key. I can appreciate the punctuation point because I, I studied English literature and have been something of a stickler for punctuation, but it is important to, to write things for the ear. Oh, well, you know, as a, I was in radio, you know, before the ministry, and so all of my manuscripts look weird simply because of that. You do put in these deliberate extra pauses, you know, that you wouldn't normally have. So I completely appreciate that and wish everybody would do it. And for people, like, grammar really is an issue, and there's, there's tough things to 
tough questions to answer there. On our website, we do have we have an entire booklet just on how we dealt with grammatical issues and you know what's going on with the computer world. And I wonder if I'm going to outlive whom, or is whom out going to live me? You know, that's all these questions are going on. One of the questions that I have regarding the translation process is dealing with the cultural issues, because when we're dealing with the Bible, we are dealing with a significantly different cultural outlook. And how does the EHV approach issues of culture and of and of history? And I know you said you also were you had studied archaeology. You know, how does that all fit into this project? Well, we can't erase their culture. If somebody is talking to the king, he will say, I will do this, or I will give it to my Lord. He doesn't say, I will give it to you. That would be too impudent. And so we will keep things like, I will do this for my Lord, and we'll put in a a fair number of comments. Or when Boaz calls Ruth his daughter, we'll explain, well, that maybe is an age difference, but it also is the difference of social status of his high status and her low status. So we can't go too far in taking away their culture, but we have to explain it. Sure. And then like when you're dealing with issues of say, I mean, other, I mean, other cultural issues, like I was, you know, going through Genesis and reading some of these things, I appreciate many of the footnotes that you have put in. I mean, they're not extensive by any means. I mean, and they're not too distracting, which is kind of my preference. I don't like to be distracted by footnotes, but I know some people really like them. And just kind of the the brief way of explaining these cultural issues, I think, can be extremely helpful because it does bring up the the differences between, say, our culture and, you know, our kind of total lack of formality. And and like you say, with uh, the Hebrew and the the high emphasis on on that social distinction. Well, sometimes people say, well, how would we say it? That's not irrelevant, but we would say, we're not trying to say it the way we would say it. We're trying to say it the way a Judean who spoke understandable English would say it to us. So, sure. so we're not trying to make Judeans 21st century Americans, but we have to communicate. I, I remember one of the points that you mentioned, like in some of your documents, explaining your the whole project yeah that you use the words like hey in the the bible which some people might think is being excessively slangy but why would why would you use a, an expression like hey when translating in the scriptures because there the hebrew word is hoy, hoy. Which, is, <laughs> which is almost exactly our hey and some people said exactly that is too slangy but it on the other hand it it isn't the Hebrew word for come on or come that comes later, it's it's a hoy. It's a, like a, a shout out, you know, get trying to get attention. So I think that was the only time we used hey, and it was because we felt it was the closest we could get to the urgency of the Hebrew hoy. Okay. But I mean, just that in itself, I think, says a great deal about what you're trying to do, because by using something that is, well, I mean, even almost a little slangy in our in the way of talking, it really does drive home the point of what Ezekiel is trying to do there, you know, to say like, hey, come and receive all of these things. And so I I think that's something worthwhile for our listeners to consider that, you know, sometimes translating the Bible means, I think even Luther said as much, you know, that you have to translate it into the language of the people and not just an academic exercise that that is purely just there to be as literal as possible. You've taken a little bit of a different approach to the use of gender-inclusive language, correct? Well, different than what? I, yeah, I guess we'd say that we were conscious of that. Our principle is, if the Bible is using a term which clearly is inclusive, like there's places where anthropos, the, in Greek, is all people. It's not based on one gender or the other. On the other hand, we would say, if you have the term brothers, and he's talking, for example, to for people for choosing another apostle. We really shouldn't translate that brothers and sisters without evidence from context in the text. If the Bible says Aaron met his brothers, Miriam and Aaron, we're going to say he met his brother and his sister. But we would say, unless the text indicates something inclusive, 
we should probably stick with the words there. We'll often put a footnote that brothers often refers to all Christians. The Greek term brothers often refers to all Christians. Right. So not just a blanket inclusive language, you know, sort of unnecessarily or anything like that, that we're starting to see, you know, some, some of today's newer, newer translations then. Yeah. And, and with, with he, we're not embarrassed by the word he, we're hesitant to change that to to they, if the passage has messianic implications, because if you change the singular to the plural, it's more difficult to see Christ there. What does the EHV do with the Lord's name? Well, we stick with Lord, you know, all caps, look, small caps. You could justify Yahweh. You could justify Jehovah is an artificial thing. But again, we think the language of the church, the hymns, the liturgy and everything has focused on this special use of Lord. And we will occasionally say why we did it that way. And in our documents, we'll say, you can argue linguistically very heavily for Yahweh or something like that as being possible. But is that the language that we've inherited in our hymns and our prayers? We, again, don't want to get the Bible translation too far away from our worship life. Mm -hmm. I think saying Lord all the time in worship and Yahweh all the time in the Bible could be kind of jarring. Yeah, I, that's a very good point. We we kind of make the joke here on the word pitly spoken of using Jehovah a lot, so that's that's why that came up. But well, it's very traditional. <laughs> we have guide me, oh my great Jehovah, or guide all our great Jehovah hymns, and I think it's all right. But we, I think there's a tendency of most recent translations to use Yahweh more than Jehovah. But we we thought we'd right. explain why Lord is well established. Certainly, try to preserve that. It, I mean, this is all this is all quite an interesting project, and trying to come up with you know every single point is something that I think we're not going to be able to do even in the course of this podcast. Read uh, listeners would be uh, would, would be interested in finding some more of the supporting documents on the Evangelical Heritage version, both in our show notes as well as on some of the official websites, uh, like for the Wartburg Project. And I'm sure that that will have answers to many of the questions that we have. So I would direct all of you to do to look into those resources after listening to our podcast. But when we're dealing with other issues in the scriptures, I'm just trying to, to think of, of some other ones that we're dealing with. And maybe going back to some of the, the, the choices that you had made regarding uh, manuscript evidence, what do you do with issues and like when you're dealing with uh, the debate between the Greek and the Hebrew, especially when you have significant differences between, say, the Septuagint on the text of Jeremiah, the, the Hebrew text on the same book? I mean, how do you resolve some of those kind of stickier issues that even scholars debate with today? We have a footnote that we don't believe that the Greek text of Jeremiah necessarily represents a better Hebrew text. And so we're not okay. rearranging the chapters of Jeremiah and stuff like that. But we will have a note, and especially a book where there's a lot of these issues. When our study Bible comes out next year, we'll have notes on that so that people can follow up on it more if they wish to. So there is a study Bible coming. Yeah, we're, the content we have, the problem is we have to find, we have to get enough of market that somebody will print it. But the, we hope to have the electronic versions out at least on Logos for Pastors we hope by next year, you never know, you know, you don't like to promise internet due dates. They have a way of. <laughs> yeah. and, I know that yeah. very well. And we, yeah. hope, we hope to have a study Bible that especially pastors can use, but lay people on the computer where like one half of your screen will be the text and the maps and stuff will be in the other half of your screen, probably the right side. And the, the maps and that will scroll along with the text. So if you put your cursor on a footnote, it will the next column over will take you to that map or picture or whatever the case may be. It's working fine right now, but again, I'm not a computer programmer. If they say if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. So we're we're happy <laughs> with how it's going so far. Are there any plans in the future to include the apocryphal books in case that, that market expands or something like that? We don't have that right now, but we we would do it if there was an interest. We haven't translated it, and we didn't want it to be in the basic Bible. Basically, if people want different things, for one thing, we're very, that would be something we'd have to do ourselves. But like somebody asks us, what, when is your Spanish version going to be out? 
And I said, <laughs> well, we aren't going to do Spanish, but if you want to use our translation as a basis, you know, for helping you make a Spanish translation, we'd be happy to arrange a license with you probably for free, I would guess. We're not in the Spanish market or somebody wants to do a Chinese version or something and they don't really work entirely with the Hebrew, but they'd like to use us as a helper for them. We're very happy to help people produce works. If somebody says, I'd like to do a simplified version for children, we'd say, well, let us see it. Another one would be, we use American measurements, feet and miles and stuff. And if somebody says, or maybe we'll do this ourselves, let's make a metric version for people in other countries. Although somewhat surprisingly, when we've raised that issue, People in other countries said, well, you think we don't know how to use feet and inches? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's almost like they're not everybody, I'm sure, but some of them are a little bit mildly offended that you'd think they can only think metric. <laughs> well, hey, we're up to our second break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back. This is Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi talking to Professor John Brug about the Evangelical Heritage Version of the Bible. So, John, we've had a lot of fun talking about the specifics of the EHV, why you're doing it, tremendously large project that you all have managed to, to put together. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about the importance of the Bible in the vernacular and especially to Lutherans, but really to all Christians. It's a very great gift that we've been given to have a Bible in a language that we can understand. So would you, would you talk a little bit about why it's important? Well, I think it is that people really can feel a, a personal contact. I think one of the things we tried to do is we tried to say it should provide not only understanding of the meaning of the ancient speaker, but it should convey some of the emotion, you know, the joy, the sorrow, that the wording should, how would, how do we express sorrow? How do we express joy? That we want to keep the emotional impact. If the language is a little rougher and tougher, well, we maybe have to be that way. If the great depths of the Psalms and the joyful heights, that would be one thing. The other place where it becomes an issue is what are our people used to reading? And so none of the formatting, of course, was in the original Bible. And you talked about helping people with the vernacular with footnotes. And so where I live in Wisconsin, it's pretty nasty and rainy often in the spring. And so we said as far as how many footnotes to put in and how to deal with the vernacular, we have the philosophy, if you're in Wisconsin going to a track made in spring, if you take too many clothes, you don't have to wear them all. If you don't take enough clothes, you can't put them on. And so one of you said you don't like the footnotes as much or you don't like the headings to help read. Many people say it really assists them with the flow. And we'd say, if you don't like the footnotes, skip them. Right. If you'd rather read without headings, skip them. So the clothes are there for people that want to put them on. And those who prefer that not have them don't have to wear them. The other thing is we try to, for, by formatting, we try to help people follow the flow naturally without getting like five quotation marks in a row or something like that. We try to give them reading. One thing where there's a difference of opinion, some people like the traditional two-column Bible reading, and you don't have as long a line to follow. 
But the majority opinion we're getting is the people feel more like they're reading a real book if they have that reading across. It's more like reading a real book and, you know, they feel they're more in tune with it. It's kind of communicating with them, speaking with them. We talked about the who and whom issue before, and there's all different things there. If if Jesus in the garden says, who are you looking for? That's going to communicate with the vernacular well, but some people are going to say that's wrong grammar. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would never use bad grammar. That's a quotation. St. <laughs> Paul would, you know, yeah, but not, yeah, not Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then if Jesus says, <laughs> for whom are you looking? Some readers will write in, our Lord Jesus Christ was not a stuffed shirt. He was a man of the people, and he sounded like a person, not a book. So in dealing with the vernacular, it's trying to find the happy medium there and having some footnotes to excuse or justify or something is part of the issue. So we wanted to speak to the people, but to realize, I always say, you know, if I'm listening to a Texan or somebody from Boston or something, somebody from New Orleans, I have to listen kind of carefully and and understand where they're coming from. I can understand them, but it takes a little effort and a little understanding. When we're talking to people that lived 2,500 years ago, even when we've got them talking in English, we just have to be patient and say, I'm trying to understand somebody that comes from a different environment. We have the same faith. We have the same Lord. We have the same Savior. We have the same law of God. But we have to listen to each other carefully and be a little patient of how one person says it or another person says it. That's how we communicate with people across the many cultures in our own land today and it's double goals when we're talking about people from 2,000 years ago. So that's kind of where we see the vernacular. It's a, it's a trade-off sometimes. Well, and something that I think happens, like especially if you have too wooden of a translation, you end up having an English translation, so to speak, but one that still doesn't actually communicate, one that actually is not understood even though it's in English. And so I can appreciate the, the balance of the EHV in you know in trying to find to be as faithful to the text as you can but also to speak in a way that is clear because that clarity of expression will actually put it into a language that people will understand and understand very easily i i taught catechism on the king james when i started teaching and you have to spend half the i love the king james it was a bible i was raised on and that you know nourished me in my spiritual life but if you have to spend a good deal of your class time explaining the translation, you can't focus as much on the essence of the meaning and so on. So that's important that people understand that we don't want to spend too much time explaining why we have it or translate old English into new English. Well, and then, of course, we as Reformation Christians can also appreciate just having a Bible in our own language to begin with. So we don't want to we don't want to downplay the great gift that God has given us in giving us the Bible in English and in an English that we can understand. Yeah, and I think if if groups like Lutheran Bible translators or something, you know, working with other languages, if some of our experience and some of our notes or even maybe some of our translation choices can help them get it into another vernacular, we're we're very happy. We'd be very happy about that and very happy to make everything we can available to them. Very good. I think that's the nitty-gritty of these translations that often get overlooked. It's never quite as simple as just saying, okay, this word means this, and we're going to put it put it together, and you end up with like a Young's literal kind of approach. <laughs> you know, you're communicating the Word of God to actual human beings, and there's, a, there's an art to that. Certainly appreciate what, what you're trying to do there. I would second what you said there in the sense, in many ways, it's more of an art than a science. It's not like doing math. Or something like that. It's more artist, more artistic than that. More human feeling. Yeah, and you know, when you're speaking to someone in another language, or that's just the way it goes. You know, you're nothing's perfect, even if it's your mother tongue, right? It's just there's a there's a flow to it that happens that is difficult to grasp in a translation. But nevertheless, we would aim for that for that as well. So you mentioned that you started out using the King James. And then went to the NIV. Did the Wisconsin Synod have like a, did they go straight from the authorized version to the NIV? Or did they have like a middle thing like the, I think no. the LCMS went to the revised standard version for a minute. 
with much suffering, I always tell people that think the present eclectic situation is hard. They should have gone through going from the German to the King James for that generation. And then it was much more difficult and much more confused. And it took some searching to finally decide NIV 84. We've never had an official Bible. We never say this is the Bible. But in practice, NIV 84 was what we were regularly using. So it was not an official Bible. Right. I think the Missouri Synod is the same way. It's like ESV is not official, but it is what's used in all the publications now. Yeah. Kind of a de facto kind of thing. The talk about the formatting was interesting. Single column versus double references. Are there plans to offer other formattings down the road or do you do you know at this point? Yes, we do. It's what's, If people are interested and somebody has to pay for the printing if they want a printed one, electronically we can provide a lot of things. It's not uncommon. It's not we're flooded with things. But people say, I would like a red letter Bible. Well, it would be relatively easy, you know, Jesus' words in red. We're not, I'm not sure that's the best thing. I've had one in my life. But if somebody wants a red letter Bible and there's sufficient interest, we would be happy to do it. Or we would be happy to give a license to somebody that says, I'd like to do a, a red letter Bible. Can I do it? And we'd say, sure, but you can't change the translation without telling us if it's going to have our name on. You can't change the translation, but we can give you a license to produce a large print is another issue. You know, I think some older people aren't the only ones that use large print, but a lot of that you can handle electronically because on your screen, you can make it as big as you need. And so it'd be pretty expensive. And I'm not sure we could convince somebody to print a sufficient quantity of a large print Bible editions. But if there's a market and there's enough interest, it isn't that we aren't perfectly happy to do this or help somebody do it. But they said uh, there has to be, even if it's a donor or somebody that supports it, there has to be some way of handling the printing. One thing that I was thinking of while you were while we were talking about all of this was, and you know, talking about putting out in different formats, is I'm actually kind of interested interested in the question of how it's already being rolled out right now. Like, do you see the Wisconsin Synod, like, adopting this translation? I mean, are, has it already been in use in within the Wisconsin Synod? Or is this just kind of a, hey, it's here and it's available and you can kind of use it if you want? We're not seeking to be adopted. I think congregations will make their own decisions. Our official position as a synod now is so-called eclectic. Some people are using NIV 11. Some think less of it. Some like ESV, but they believe it doesn't read quite as well in the lections of the, the service. So I think this is what happened when we went to NIV 84. Different Bibles were used and tested in the life of the church. And people of the church who use these Bibles will decide this one seems good to me. This seems good for our Christian school. And we expect that whatever happens, we're perfectly happy to trust God's people at the congregational level. So we hope they'll at least look at our translation, but we're happy to trust them if they want to use us, you know, off and on, or if they want to use us in a catechism or something. We think the church at worship and the church at prayer and the church teaching finally is where the input should come from of what a specific group or individual wants to use for this part of their life. Sure. Well, and I I think that you guys, uh, the Wisconsin Synod, going through like the the adoption of the the NIV eighty four and that sort of thing. I'm not sure. Maybe Willie, correct, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I don't think the, the Missouri Synod has ever really gone through a similar kind of debate. I think we've just kind of rolled into different translations as we went along. I, I think you're right. You know, King James held on, I think, longer. I, I know that some congregations were using Revised Standard Version or what it would have been. But I think that, that you probably start to see that in the 50s. And then there's still a mix. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything that is coming out of Concordia Publishing is going to be ESV now. I mean, there are still the King James right. Catechism and I think maybe some NIV ones in stock. But you certainly have parishes that are still using NIV you have parishes that right. are still using King James in certain cases. I mean, even exclusively, not just on special occasions. 
high holy days, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, it's interesting. I think the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod have been very similar in that regard. And that makes sense. The ESV continues to become popular, so I don't see us moving away from it too quickly either. But the NIV, and I'm speaking in all of English-speaking Christianity, seems to be on a downward trajectory where the ESV is up. So I do think that there is a market out there for something like the EHV. People are looking into these, these translations that follow what are often a more traditional approach particularly with the vocabulary that you're choosing to use, keeping the classic church words. You know, it's a, it's an interesting time for, for Bible publishing, and it's good to see a, a faithful Lutheran translation out there. And we, we only have a handful, right? You've got the Luther Bible, you have Beck's, and now the, the EHV. So that's kind of a cool cool thing, right? And we hope so. And then again, we say it's not just for Lutherans, right, but right. it's... It, it's done by Lutherans for everyone. for everyone, yeah, and that's 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 a great thing, you know. We want to get our get as much good Lutheran material out there you know, as we as we can. I mean, that that should be one of our should be one of our goals. Another thought too is that with the tradition of like the Luther Bible and Luther's own translation of of the Bible, I mean, I I think he basically struck for more of this kind of somewhere in the middle of literal versus a dynamic understanding anyway. He wasn't glued to one theory or the other. He said, what will communicate? Right. And so in that sense, the EHV is following in the footsteps of Luther in, in producing a translation that speaks directly to the people when in, in the way that it needs to. As of right now, then, uh, as we're coming up towards the end of the segment, tell us if someone wants to read the EHV right now, uh, where can they go? Well, they can order it from Northwestern Publishing House, but it will probably take a few weeks to get there because they've sold so much quicker than they thought. The electronic versions, they should be announcing pretty soon if some people like Kindle and Nook. Or if, for example, a pastor needs a lection for one week because he doesn't have the Old Testament yet, we've tried to keep up with helping pastors or if they're doing a special reading that we don't have. We have a book of text for composers if they want to use them for music. So right now we hope they're pretty quick at getting the, the print copies rolling again. Very good. Do you have any final words, particularly on the importance of the Bible in the Christian life? You're a Lutheran pastor, so I'm sure you've got a, a few things you could say on that. Yeah, well, I can even use a non-Lutheran saying, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If I didn't have that, when we're constantly teaching an Old Testament text or when we're talking about Genesis, we're always focusing on, we can find out a little bit about God from nature. We can find out about some law from nature, but we can't find Christ as the only payment for all the sins of the world anywhere else than in a Bible that speaks to the language and the hearts of the people. That's that's the heart of it. Amen. Zellin, any questions? Well, I would just direct our listeners again to our show notes. We'll include in there links to the Wartburg Project as well as some explanatory material, and you can find out answers to many of your questions there. I mean, because we haven't even covered everything that could be done. And I know with having a copy of my own and kind of working through it, I I find it to be a, a very helpful translation and certainly one that people should consider looking into. And, you know, it might not replace your authorized version. It might not replace your NIV, whatever. But the point is, is that it is still a good translation to learn something new about what God has to say to us in our day and time. So I will commend our listeners to that, as well as encouraging them to check out the links. Well, Pastor Brook, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Nice to talk to you and Get, we preach all, all kinds of input, and we also appreciate output toward other people. They just search Wartburg Project. They'll find the links easy enough. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to tracking down a copy myself. So thanks thanks again. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, Hilversell and Heidi, and John Brug. God love you, and God bless.
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets at many times and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of the divine nature. He sustains all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high.